0: I would ask that you turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Have you found it? Tell me how you're doing so I wait on you appropriately. All right. One of you has found this, ch- this passage. I appreciate that. Colossians chapter 1, look down at verse 15, please. And this is the holy and perfect Word of God. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Will you pray with me? Father, this is your word, perfect and holy and right. This is the word that you ordained would be for our church this day. This is a word that magnifies Christ. Christ. So I ask you today, Lord, magnify the Lord Jesus in our hearts. Let us worship him and see him as glorious. And let us please you as we respond. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Singing the praises of God is a wonderful activity, isn't it? like to sing those songs. Not only is singing commanded by God... But singing the praises of God is also a way for us to teach one another truth about God. In fact, that's language Paul uses in chapter 3 of Colossians. Have you ever stopped to consider just how much you have learned about God from well-written music? I mean, we just sang, holy, holy, holy. And that helps us to learn, even my children... If you ask somebody, what does Trinity mean? They, I mean, you almost go, God in three persons, right? I mean, it just comes out because it's holy, holy, holy taught you. God is God in three persons, the blessed Trinity. Or the old hymn, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, teaches us nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? Or what we sang earlier, the more modern in Christ alone shows us that on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I mean, those are big, heady, heavy, glorious truths. And there is some great and encouraging and theologically rich truth in music in the Bible. You know this, right? I mean, if I asked you to tell me where the song book of the Bible is, where would you turn? You go to Psalms, right? You know the Psalms is 150 songs of praise and prayer and lament and woe and all the rest, right? But if I asked you to find some other music in the Bible, you might go to Philippians 2, 5-8. That hymn of the ancient church that shows us how Jesus... Uh, became flesh and how he obeyed God, humbled himself to the point of obedience, to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? Well, as we continue our walk through the letter of Paul to the Colossians, we're about to take a look at what many people would tell you, and I think they're right, is an ancient song in the words of Scripture. We're about to study a hymn. Paul has been already telling the members of the Colossian Church about how grateful he is to God for them. He's been telling them of how he has been praying on their behalf. He's been telling them how he prays that they would understand the great joy of the gospel. And now we get to see a hymn whose purpose is to praise the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, before we jump in, though, I want to get you ready to understand the conflict that is present in this teaching. Paul is writing about the supremacy of Jesus. That's what this hymn's about. But he's probably doing so because there were people around the Colossians who were calling the supremacy of Jesus into question. For as long as people have understood Jesus to be God in the flesh, there have been other people who have tried to argue that Jesus is like God, God God-ish, divine in his own way. But that he's somehow less than or lower than God the Creator, that he was made by God. Whether you think about Gnostics from the second century or the Arians from the fourth century, those people believed that Jesus could not both be fully God and fully man. And both groups were condemned by biblical church leaders as heretics. And today, Groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons still believe doctrines that declare Jesus to be created and therefore lesser than God the Father. And sadly, even among evangelicals, even among people that get these doctrines right usually, there are a lot of people that are confused about the eternality of Jesus. I've sat in an ordination service before and asked a young man who was candidating to be a pastor, is there ever a time when Jesus didn't exist? And the young man looked up and said, well, I guess there'd have to be if he's got son. Like, no, 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 no. That's Arianism. That is a heresy. Church, we need to get the supremacy of Christ. Right. If we don't get anything right, we need to get this right. If you're a note taker, write across the top of your outline the one point for this sermon. Don't write it too big, though, because there might be some sub points. Praise Jesus for his supremacy. That's what this whole song is about. What we're going to find, though, is seven ways or reasons why that we praise Jesus. For his supremacy. So you ready? Point number one. Praise Jesus for his supremacy. Why? Jesus is our picture of God. Jesus is our picture of God. Look at verse 15 of Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says he's the the image of the invisible God. Just as soon as we get started, we come across one of the most important and often misinterpreted phrases in the whole Bible. What does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Now, the word icon actually comes from the Greek word behind that word there for image you all know what an icon is, right? That's a little picture you poke on your computer when you want something to happen. <laughs> and the word icon means more than one thing, right? I mean, it can mean an image or an icon can be a small representation of some big reality, right? It can be a little picture of a, or statue of a person, maybe, or a typewriter or something, depending on what your icon is. But the word icon can also mean something much more profound than that. An image can be the exact and perfect representation of something else. And this is what's in view with the word here. Because Paul is telling us, when speaking about Jesus, that Jesus is our perfect picture of God Jesus is the God we can see now how do we know that well first of all the passage that we study to follow this is going to show us with great clarity but listen don't try to flip there you won't have time but as I give you some other scripture passages that help us to know that we're talking about something more than a tiny picture of a big reality we're talking about the perfect picture Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, speaking of Jesus, says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That does not sound like a tiny copy. The author of Hebrews wants you to see that Jesus is exactly God on the earth. Or listen to these words from John chapter 1. Starting at verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Then verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18 says, No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So, the beginning of John's Gospel speaks of Jesus as the Word who is both God and with God. And it tells us that Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And it was because Jesus became flesh that we were able to see the glory of God. Because Jesus, by coming to earth in flesh, displayed for us all to see exactly who God is. Later in his Gospel, John records for us Jesus saying in John 14, 9, "...whoever has seen me has seen the Father." Jesus says to have seen Him is to have seen the Father, to have seen God. But in His own words in chapter 5, Jesus makes it clear that He is Himself not the Father. So Jesus shows us God. He is the image of the God we cannot see. He is God made visible. He's not the Father, but He and the Father are God. One God. Just like we read in the Nicene Creed earlier. And so, Christians, we praise Jesus for his supremacy. Why? Because Jesus is our perfect picture of God. It's not bad for one phrase, is it? Point number two Jesus outranks all creation. Jesus outranks all creation. Verse 15 says, again, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And here we go, in the second half of this verse, we find a phrase that is often as misinterpreted as the first half of the verse. Just as some groups will use that first half to say, oh, Jesus is just a picture of God, he's just an image of God, he's not really God. The same groups argue that the second phrase means that Jesus is a created being, somehow lower than God himself. Let's make sure we get it right. Now, on the surface, you can understand why they get this wrong, don't you? If it says he's the firstborn of creation, it sounds like it could be saying Jesus is the first created thing. Well, maybe a little Greek will help us, right? Because we we like to get out of, of tight tangles by doing the Greek, don't we? But really, if you look at the Greek word behind firstborn, it doesn't help it can certainly mean the firstborn child in a family. It could be talking about chronological birth order. But you know what? A look at the Bible will reveal to you that the word firstborn can mean more than chronological birth order, which kid came out first. Sometimes the Bible talks about the word firstborn and uses it to indicate a position of rank. The sibling among all the rest who outranks the other children in the, in the family, receives the right of the firstborn, even if that child is not actually the first child born. I mean, if you ask me, I really believe that the third child born is often the wisest and most handsome of three brothers. Well, it's funny, I don't even have to tell you why, do I? <laughs> but think about Jacob. Who was older, Jacob or Esau? Esau was older, but Jacob gets the right of the firstborn. Ephraim was the secondborn son of Joseph, but he gets the right of firstborn over his brother Manasseh. And if you think about the Bible, you always think, if you think about those two names, you think Ephraim and Manasseh, you never think Manasseh and Ephraim, even though Manasseh is the older son. Ephraim got the firstborn right. But perhaps most helpful in the discussion is something said about King David in Psalm 89:27. If you're a note taker, write that down, it'll help you later. Psalm 89:27, God says, "And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth." So God declares, speaking of King David, that he is going to make David the firstborn, the highest of the kings. But now, was David the firstborn human? No. Was David the first ever king? No. Was David even the first king of Israel? No. But God said he was going to make David firstborn. Meaning, God was saying, I am going to rank David above every other king of Israel. So you see, to call Jesus firstborn of creation is to declare that Jesus completely outranks all of creation. It doesn't mean that he's part of creation. Jesus entered into creation for the purposes of God. He entered into humanity to rescue the children of God. But do not make a mistake about this. Jesus is not created he is above all creation. He is Lord over creation. So we praise Jesus for his supremacy because Jesus outranks all creation. Third. Are your brains full by the way? Or are you doing okay? This this goes heavy, doesn't it? Third, Jesus is creator. Jesus is creator. Verse 16, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, notice the word for. Four at the beginning of this verse, it tells us that it is explaining to us something that was just said. Paul said Jesus is the perfect picture of God, image of God. He says that Jesus is the one who outranks all created things. Now the four tells us why Jesus is above all created things. Verse 16 says that all things that were created were created by Jesus. That brings back to mind that stuff I read to you from John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God. Word was it God, the Word was God. It, verse 3 says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Can you get clearer than that, by the way? Everything was made through Him, and nothing was made that wasn't made by Him. I don't know how you get clearer. Jesus made all things. No thing that exists was ever made apart from Jesus. Which means, by the way, could Jesus be a thing that was made? Wouldn't make sense, would it? If He made all the things, He can't be a thing that was made. Because for Him to be a made thing would be for Him to be... You get it, right? He is Creator. For... Look at that verse again for by all by him, all things were made in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Does that pretty much cover it for you? All physical things and all spiritual things that exist were created by Jesus. No earthly or spiritual power exists apart from Jesus. You see, there are scholars who believe that there were false teachers in and around Colossae who were being drawn into this belief system. And the belief system said, oh, there are all sorts of spiritual powers and authorities that rule over our daily lives and and we have to appease those powers or we have to conquer those powers if we want to live a full spiritual life. For some reason, when I talk about spirituality like that, I get that particular voice because I want to say dude at the end of it. (laughs) If these scholars are right about these false teachers that talk about the spirits up there that are ruling us, here's what we know. Paul wanted all of those guys to know Jesus is superior to any spiritual force you could possibly imagine. Because there is no spiritual force that exists that wasn't created by Jesus. And then Paul strengthens the whole thing up by saying all things were created through him and for him. He said that everything that exists, exists by Jesus through Jesus and for Jesus in every way you could possibly say it. Jesus is supreme. He made everything by his power, through his authority. He made everything for himself. Everything that exists, exists to bring Jesus glory. So Christians, we praise the supremacy of Jesus because Jesus is the creator. Does this give you desire to worship, I hope? Fourth point, Jesus is eternal, eternal. Verse 17, the beginning. And he is before all things. This is a hymn. Remember, we're singing about Jesus. The hits are still coming. though. Paul says Jesus is before all things. Now, that makes sense. You might say this is obvious. If Jesus created everything, He has to exist before the things were created. Again, in your mind, go back to John chapter 1 that said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And John was saying, hey, if Jesus created everything, He has to have already been in the beginning with God, as God. But Paul's language in Colossians is even more interesting because Paul says that Jesus is before all things. He does not say Jesus was before all things. And that's really intentional language on Paul's part. Paul wants you to think about Jesus as simply being without a past tense. In the Old Testament, when Moses asked God, tell me your name. What did God call himself? He said, I am who I am. And God made sure that Moses knew that God's name means that God is, that God exists, that God is eternal. There's no point, no point when God is not. Forever in the past, Even before the creation of time and forever in the future, God is. So then think with me, even with Jesus' own words, right? Do you remember there was a time in his ministry when the religious teachers were trying to make fun of Jesus? Jesus had said, guys, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And then religious teachers want to make fun of him. They're like, you're not even 50. You're going to tell me Abraham knew you? What's wrong with you? And in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, he spoke of himself with the same eternal present. And the Jewish leaders around him wanted to pick up stones and kill him because they knew he had just declared himself to be God, even using the I Am name for himself. Christians, it is a very, very big deal for Jesus to be eternal. There is only one word that we have for someone who exists before time. We call that person God. No created being is before all things. A created being might go way back in time, but no created being could be before time or before all things. Thus, if Jesus is before all things, He is not created. He is superior to all things. There is no spiritual being. There is no earthly being who could ever outrank Jesus. And so we praise Jesus for His supremacy because Jesus is eternal. Point number five. Nothing like a five-point sermon, right? You're getting seven and I could have made it nine. (laughs) Point five, Jesus is sustainer. He is sustainer. Look at verse 17 again. And in him all things hold together. You know, there are a lot of why questions out there. And some of them we can't answer no matter how hard we try. What keeps things going? What keeps atoms together instead of making them blow apart? You ever realize how hard that question actually is, by the way? What makes gravity work? I mean, we all know it works. On some of us, it works too good. But but if somebody says why, it gets hard to explain. What keeps the universe from losing all of its energy and going cold and dying? Or, okay, picture a globe, right? Now, we live up on the top half, but Australians live on the bottom. What keeps them from falling off? (laughs) Maybe that's not a serious scientific inquiry. Scientists can give you a lot of answers, though, as to the laws of nature, right? They can explain forces and fields and energies and so much more than we can wrap our brains around. But you can have a lot of fun with a scientist by acting like a four-year-old and just asking why. Just keep asking it. Yes, I know that's a law of nature, but why? Well, it is. Why? Why does it do that? Why is it like that? Why do they keep working? Why does, gra- why does the law of gravity not change? Why do the rules remain the rules? You see, Paul says about Jesus, in him all things hold together. Jesus didn't just make everything that is. Jesus is the person who makes everything continue to be. He holds all things together by his power, by his might. He, he's the sustainer of the universe. You know why all the scientific laws that are true hold true? They do so because Jesus holds things together. You want to consider why we know the sun is going to come up tomorrow? It's because Jesus keeps the earth spinning. Now, yeah, you can explain it with gravity and motion and momentum and astronomy and all that other stuff, and it's really true, but the reason gravity actually works and the reason momentum keeps going is because Jesus holds things together and doesn't let them go. Let's go philosophical instead of scientific. I'm actually better at that. Philosophy uses the term necessary being. And the idea is there are certain beings in the universe that are unnecessary. Do not think of reality TV stars right now. (laughs) (laughs) There are beings that are unnecessary. And what a philosopher means about an unnecessary being is if that being ceases to exist, it would not bring the universe to an end. Okay, you can think of reality TV stars now that I think about it. A. Necessary being, however, is one that should he cease to exist, everything else ceases to exist too. See, if I were never born, the universe itself would be just fine. But were God to stop existing, the universe would stop existing right along with him. God is the necessary being. And get this, Colossians 1.17 lets us know that Jesus is that necessary being. Now consider how this shows us how different Jesus is from every other figure in human history. No philosophical teacher from human history holds the universe together. No great man in the past keeps the the planets spinning and keeps atoms from flying apart. Jesus fits that description. Christians praise Jesus for His supremacy because Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. Now, just so you know, we probably just made it to the end of the first verse of the hymn. We've seen that Jesus is our picture of God. He outranks all creation. He is the eternal creator and sustainer of all things. But now as we sing the second verse of the song. We're going to see that as Jesus is over the universe, he's also over the church. Point number six. Jesus is the risen Lord over the church. It's a long sentence, but you get two points out of it, really. Jesus is the risen Lord over the church. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There are a lot of metaphors in the Bible to describe the church. Can you think of some? Just so I know you're still awake. Give me a metaphor for the church. The bride. bride. Good. What else? Body, Body, right? What else? Children. Children of God, right? Very good. Bride, body, flock, right? We're sheep. We're smelly and dumb. Uh, No, no, no. (laughs) A family? Again, you might apply smelly and dumb depending on who your family is, but we're going to stop that right there. The bottom line is there are a lot of pictures the Bible uses to describe the church, but one of the most vivid images, one of the ones you and I can get hold of real good, is when Paul calls the church a body. And Paul has used language of body in the church before. In Paul's earlier letters, it was usually something that he used to indicate how important every church member is to all the others. His point was that no individual member is worth more than another individual member of the church, no matter how gifted that person may be. Every one of us needs each other, right? So, by the way, please hear me on this. I'm taking a side note for just a second. The church is lesser when you're not with her. She just is. I'm not saying that to give anybody guilt. But y'all, we need each other. And just like you wouldn't say, you know, I just don't think I feel like having a big toe today, I'm going to lop it off. <laughs> we need you with us as we worship and study and grow together. You're valuable, no matter how gifted you think you are or you're not. It matters. We love you guys. We want to be together. We need each other. But here, when Paul talks about the body, he's not talking about how much we need each other. He's using the metaphor to show us something about the supremacy of Jesus. If the church is a body, Jesus is the head. When you think ahead, head, think of two things. The head is the source of the body. The body cannot exist. It cannot survive. It cannot live without Jesus. Jesus is necessary for the church to exist. But second, think of the head as the part of the body that leads. Decisions get made and guidance is given from the head. Trust me, if you didn't have your head, the rest of your body would not do what it's supposed to do. (laughs) Jesus is the part of the body that helps the body to move and to survive. And those pictures are great, right? Jesus is over the church. He is the founder of the church. He is necessary for the church to survive. He is the one who has the right to tell the church what to do, how she should do it, how she should live. And Jesus is, the next part of the verse says, He's the beginning. We talked about Jesus as eternal earlier, before the beginning of the universe. Now we know that Jesus is also the beginning of the church. And that beginning is tied to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. When Paul calls Jesus the firstborn from among the dead, he's making reference to the fact that Jesus did not stay in the grave. He is both the first person to rise from the grave to eternal life, and he's the highest ranking person to ever rise from the dead. By the way, keep that rank thing in mind. Is Jesus the first person to ever come back from the dead at all? How do you know? Well, yeah, He brought three people back from the dead in his own ministry, right? Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the son of the widow at Nain. In the Old Testament, there's a dude they tried to throw in a grave and his bones touched Elisha's bones and he got back up. Which is totally cool, by the way. <laughs> Would be a great movie clip. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, there you go. Well, Jesus is, however, the highest ranking from the dead. His resurrection is a big deal. One of the failings of the modern church is that we fail to focus ourselves very much on the resurrection of Jesus. When you hear Christians talk today, have you ever noticed resurrection language is not some of the first stuff we point to? Think about this. We rightly talk about the atonement, We rightly talk about the blood sacrifice of Jesus. You might use terms like vicarious, penal substitutionary atonement, propitiation. But have you ever noticed that sometimes we fail to point out that it is the resurrection of Jesus that ties the entire gospel together and confirms for us the message of Jesus and that our hope and our forgiveness are true? Paul said to us in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, for the early church, it was always the resurrection that gave them hope. It was the resurrection that the apostles pointed to as the ultimate proof of the faith. Paul says that the resurrection shows Jesus as preeminent, the supreme one. He's over everything, including the church. And so we can praise Jesus for his supremacy because Jesus is the risen Lord over all the church. Point number seven. I don't even have much breath left. Jesus is God in flesh who puts all things in their proper place. It's a long point, but I didn't know how to make it shorter. Jesus is God in flesh, who puts all things in their proper place. Look at the last two verses, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here we go. One last confirmation of the deity, of the godness of Jesus. Paul says that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. That is a beautiful way to affirm that Jesus is both human and divine. Fully man, fully God. And it's interesting here, Paul uses the word fullness here, because in later cults, that word for fullness became a buzzword for, again, that greater deep spiritual experience that you could climb up to if you follow the mystical teachings and revelations of those spirit beings we talked about earlier. You know, those spirits that are supposed to be controlling the universe, and you got to know the secret tricks to get past them. But in one little word, using the word fullness there, Paul shows that there is no fullness to achieve apart from Jesus. There is no mystical and spiritual life out there for you if you don't go through Jesus. We don't have spiritual life. Without Jesus, because Jesus is God and Jesus is the creator and Jesus is the source of all spiritual life. And the fullness of God, every last bit, dwells in Jesus and accomplishes just one last task we're going to see before we wrap up. God is pleased through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here is the universal impact of the cross work of Christ. The cross of Christ accomplishes reconciliation. Now, to reconcile things is to put things in a proper relationship. If you reconcile your bank statement, you make sure that you account properly for all of your money. You know where it is, where, that it's where it's supposed to be. You might find out there's not very much of it, but you know where it is. When sin entered the universe, every last part of creation was affected. Romans 8, 20 to 23 says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, for, eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you get this? Ever since the first human sin, all of creation has been groaning. All of creation has been longing to be set right. The world is not supposed to be like it is right now. People aren't supposed to get sick. Storms aren't supposed to destroy homes. Earthquakes are not supposed to tear apart villages. Famine and disease and human trafficking and depression and adultery and crime and death are not supposed to exist. Not in a universe reconciled to God. And the blood that Jesus shed on the cross is the instrument through which God will work out a perfect reconciliation of all creation. This doesn't mean that every human being is going to be forgiven and celebrate eternally with God. The Bible is clear that judgment is going to occur and that some people are going to be under the wrath of God forever. But the passage does mean that in the end, in the end, everything is going to be as it should be. Those who are forgiven by God in Christ will because of His blood, be cleansed and purified and perfected and live out a glorious forever in the presence of God in perfect peace and perfect joy. And those who are not under the grace of God, they will, witnessed against by the blood of Christ, suffer the judgment of God that they have earned through their willful rebellion against Him. And because of the blood of Jesus, do you get this? The whole universe is going to get set right. Listen to Revelation 21, 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man I remembered yesterday that it had been two years since I preached my own father's funeral. I'm looking forward to there not being those to do anymore. God says, I'm going to come, I'm going to live with you, I'm going to dry your tears, and I'm going to kill death, and it's not going to be there anymore. That hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. That day will come. God will reign with His children in His presence and all hardships will be no more. And everything that used to oppose God is either going to turn to Him for mercy and forgiveness or it's going to have been properly judged because all accounts will be reconciled and God will be glorified forever. And it happens through the person and the work of Jesus Christ as He does everything He ever promised to do Now you tell me, who could accomplish that much? Only God. And so Christians, praise Jesus for his supremacy because Jesus is God in flesh who puts everything in its proper place. What a song, huh? That's that's better than most pop songs you hear today, just so you know. What a song. What a Savior. Jesus is supreme and we've got a lot of reasons to praise Him for that supremacy. So let me say this to you. Today, Jesus offers you grace. If you have never received the mercy of Christ, His command is that you turn away from your sin, that you renounce it, and that you put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone as your only hope. But if you ask Him for forgiveness in faith, He will reconcile you to God. For all the rest who do know that they are together with Jesus, praise Him. We celebrate that Jesus is supreme, and He's glorious, and we thank Him for His grace. Let that truth, let these truths just rung in our hearts today. Let it lead you to worship Jesus. Let it lead you to obedience. And let it lead you to serve the risen Son of God. Let's bow together and pray. Lord Jesus, there's more there than we could ever unpack. And it's so beautiful. And our prayer is that as we sing your praise in response and as we let our hearts believe what you've taught us, that you'll be magnified. Let us praise you for your supremacy. We ask it in Christ's name.